Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book, the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. My guest today is Andrina Zawinski. She's a veteran educator and feminist activist born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA, and has made her home in the Bay Area since 2000. Her latest poetry collection is called Landings. She's published two previous full collections of poetry called Something About, which was a Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award recipient, and Traveling in Reflected Light, a Kenneth Patchen competition winner. She's also authored four chapbooks and is editor of Turning a Train of Thought Upside Down, an anthology of women's poetry. She is also the originator and chief poet of the Women's Potluck and Poetry Salon, which I've had the privilege of being a participant in. And I could say that in that role, she has served, in a sense, my mentor. Not so much about what poems to write, but to keep on writing. And that seems to be the essential thing about being a poet. Welcome and gratitude to you. Andrina Zawinski. Thank you, Nina. It's my pleasure to be here again. Well, what poems did you bring us? Well, I thought I would start with a poem called Dancing with Neruda's Bones. And it was inspired by the news reports that Neruda's body was to be exhumed to see his true cause of death. Yes, at the time of his death, they said, oh, he died of cancer. But others were saying, no, he didn't die of cancer. He was poisoned and that was because he was brought from Isla Negra, the island where he lived, to Santiago during the time of the Pinochet regime. And he was one of the arch enemies and symbol of the Allende government, the progressive, the socialist government. This poem is uh, a surrealistic narrative, and it's also part cento. By that, I mean that in each stanza, there is a line from one of Neruda's poems. Fantastic. Dancing with Neruda's Bones. Neruda, only known to me in the poet's words, I love you, as certain dark things are to be loved in secret between the shadow and the soul. Neruda's bones have been exhumed for examination. I did not want his decomposed body uprooted from its plot, transmogrified into murder mystery. Poet of eternal present, I cradle his imagined bones and pull them to me, his tango body's phalanges jangling as I cross in gyro, tibia, and fibia. Pinned by the sun between solstice and equinox, drowsy and tangled together, clanking across tiles of a kitchen floor. Let Neruda be, I plea, still dancing, his bones tethered to my body, tripping and swaying in tango rhythm, talking head on the radio, droning on in conspiracy theories of the Pinochet regime, poisoning Neruda, life split in poetry and politics, as the night wind whirls in the sky and sings. 
Forecast of ill fortune to lift bones from the grave, much like this wave of melancholia. In inevitable surrender, I concede, what does it matter to have dug them up as his love lyrics resonate in his monotone moan, Gardel crooning behind our bumpy boleo, El Dia que me quieres. Neruda's unearthed skeleton clings to my arms, scent of honeysuckle climbing limbs like vines, as I sweep and dip inside his metaphoric sigh of sea and our final sultada, voice of the rain crying, no carnations, for me only a wound that love has opened. Neruda, now so mystical and magical, Cloaks his bones in flesh and play, conjures a dusty fiddle, leaps and lands on the walkway below. The violin, with its ragged companion, learning how to befriend lost souls and sing songs to wandering strangers. That was deep. I, I think that Neruda has been such a beacon to the world international poetry scene, but certainly to activist poets around the world. And that was v very shocking, and, and you caught the duality of it. How good that it's happening, because the truth is always good. And how sad when graves are messed with. There seems to be something not right, then I think that's what the indigenous people have been trying to tell us all along. Your poems always seem to hit on the truth of everything, and that form that you found for it. Tell me about that form again. Well, the cento is, is a form where you take the poet's words and use them, rearrange them, get creative with them. In this case, I use them very specifically to interject into stanzas in a way that they would flow smoothly with my own words and thoughts. Well, you certainly succeeded in that. What's the next poem you brought? Uh, well, I brought this poem called Le Créon qui parle, and it has an epigraph by the Tunisian revolutionary poet Al-Shabi that says night will then begin to fade and chains break and fall. And it addresses one of many terrorist attacks we've been experiencing worldwide. But it also poses or tries to answer the question, what do we do as artists or musicians or writers? Before you read the poem, could you translate into English the title of the poem? Le Crayon qui parle is the, the pen that speaks. And in it, Picasso makes a little debut at the beginning. And he had a whole series of poem paintings that he did in the 1950s uh, that he titled Le Crayon qui parle because he took a break from visual art and decided to dabble in poetry. Let's hear. When Picasso traded his Pont Neuf studio paints and brushes for pen to write, I separate day from night and the starless sky from the empty heart. His canvases turned inky pages of words, their untamed sketches of dreams winding paths of thought through summer light, streaming in parlor windows between wars until Gertrude Stein advised, Pablo, go home and paint. Then Guernica rose in blacks and whites, its wild-eyed bull rearing up above a grief-stricken mother with child in arms, the speared horse, swords sprouting flowers, dismembered arm bearing a flame-lit light of hope. Troops 
have since fortress darkened Parisian ruse, its artists and writers, its families and friends in retreat from familiar cafes and galleries, stadiums and concert halls, from jihadists with Kalishnikovs and bomb belts. Everyone holed up in their ateliers, lofts, homes, peering out over Seine or Vosges, Tuileries or Bois, across arrondissements, onto blackened views of a wounded city, mourning and left to do what it must, to witness, to sing or to pray, to hold vigil, to take up paints or dig hands in clay, to run fingers across keys, to put pen to paper, to let le crayon parle as dreary, fearsome nights begin to fade and chains of pain break and fall. Wow. I didn't know about Picasso taking a break from being a visual artist to writing poetry. There you you used Picasso's own line, but you didn't make it into that other form that you just mentioned. Correct. The cento. You didn't. Why did you make that choice? I, I read a lot of the poems he wrote at the time, and I just tried to pick what I thought was the strongest line to be ironical with Gertrude Stein shaking her head and saying, no, you're not a poet. So do you think that was true? I think from what I've read, it was true. Oh. <laughs> I think he may have been a bit full of himself thinking that he could do everything. Oh, because usually you think of Gertrude Stein as this kind of nurturing of artists because of the role that she played with Ernest Hemingway, that it was surprising to have her have a negative response to his writing. Right. I'd like to read another one. And it's a thing that happens with writers often, where you start in one place and there's some sort of a trigger that takes you to an entirely different place. But they do have a thread that links them. And this poem is called Raft, so it is in these two scenes. It starts out on an Alameda beach in the middle of summer, watching children play, and then it goes on to address the ongoing Syrian refugee crisis. It's called Rafts. Rafts. Sun spills silver stars of light along rippling summer waves. A string of pelicans wing the horizon, light in flight for all their heft. Children squeal and squirm inside their plastic inflatable. One slips over the side, feigns drowning, splashing and kicking, holding on to his crying sister, then jumps back in to tickle her side. All of them swimming in giggles and smiles, in frolic and fun. Family picnicking at the shore, waving from bright beach towels. Other children roped onto rafts in flimsy life jackets, float in from Aleppo, across the Aegean, away from bombs and bullets, to find a way out, forge a way in, whole families cattled by smugglers, squeezed in dozens deep. But those who slip into this dark sea cannot be rescued with innocent teasing and mirth. A three-year-old washes up onto the beach, face down on the sand, limp body leaden in his father's arms, water lapping the wounded shore. Very heavy. So what other poem do you have? I find that I write a lot about people who are gone, who are forgotten. I kind of feel like I 
need to keep them alive in a little way through poetry. Maybe many of us do that. This poem is called The Disappeared. It's a short poem in four stanzas, and each stanza is dedicated to a different person. The first stanza is dedicated to Myra Solis, a Juarez sex murder victim, whose name appeared on a small black cross I was given at a Days of the Dead event while she was still missing. And at the writing of the poem, I had discovered in a, in a computer search that her body had been found. The second stanza is dedicated to uh, Rosanna King, a child paralyzed from the nickel mines shooting where the shooter said, I want the women. The third is to Kavitha Srihashra, who is founder of the Global Freedom Center to End Human Trafficking. And the last to Rafia Hussein, a 14-year-old electrocuted in her burga by her father for not marrying a relative. The Disappeared. The Disappeared. Across the sprawling green of lawn commemorating another Dias de los Muertos pink crosses stagger the walk for the murdered women of Ciudad Juarez, thousands missing or dead over the years. A procession of candles sputter and spark for a schoolhouse splattered in blood, its Amish girls gunned down by a milk truck driver with three guns and a grudge in West Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Muffled prayers petition the October air for women packed tight in shipping containers across the Pacific Northwest to appear indexed on packing lists masked as menus, lo mein, satay, kimchi, pho. Frankincense smolders for those who vanish, shadows in the streets, whole countries disappearing under the weight of burgas. It burns for all of those who are not, for all of those who never will be. All of these are attacks on women. Yes, they are. And these people are not part of the Me Too movement. No, they didn't survive. They did not survive. Let's stop for a minute. Okay. Let's deal with this Me Too movement. My feeling is that it, it happened so fast. First, there was one Me Too on the Facebook, and then within weeks, it was an international movement. Some of these disclosures coming from the gut and, and reaching the points of, of poetry because it touched the person so deeply and they wanted to communicate it so fiercely. I can't imagine this fountain of, of consciousness happening that quickly internationally without the Internet. Do you have any comment or response to that? I think that it's mostly um, been national, but it has drawn attention to the international. Every now and then we get a little smattering report of some of the things that happen internationally. I think it's incredibly important that women speak out. And I know from a personal point of view that it's probably one of the most difficult things most of those women have done. Because even enlightened minds will look at women who have experienced assault and other things as damaged. And they always have this perpetual feeling of damage, even though we talk about being survivors. I have a poem that does address that international, written before the Me Too movement, and it's called As the World Splits Open. And it starts with a, an epigraph from Marge Piercy from her iconic 1975 rape poem that says, Fear of rape is a cold wind blowing on a woman's hunched back. This one is written for two voices, so I hope I'll be able to make the switch between voices. 
Six men rape and murder a New Delhi medical student on a bus. Her ashes and their crime scattered to winds crossing the Ganges. A woman is raped every 20 minutes in India. Three brothers take two low-caste village girls, twist their scarves into nooses to cut deep into their necks, leave them to die hanging from a mango tree. Women protesters are blasted by police water cannons. A mob of 20 attack a girl in Cairo's Tahrir Square in front of her parents at a presidential inauguration, her body bloodied, clawed, raw, clothes torn from her. Crimes against women are repeated and unpunished. Women go shopping, to school, to jobs. In Ciudad Juarez, they disappear, their bodies found stabbed, dismembered, mutilated, torched desert blood. Crimes against women remain unsolved and unstoppable. Five soldiers rape a Nairobi mother, charge her for insulting a government body, her sentence delayed to breastfeed. A crime against one woman is a crime against all women. Buried neck high stone before a thousand spectators, a Somali girl suffers a public death for reporting her rape. Hundreds of Nigerian girls are kidnapped for sex slave trade to be brokered across the Middle East, Europe, Russia. Girls bought and sold as talismans of youth and virility in India, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia are more likely to die than to learn how to read. Countless millions of children are ravaged in times of war. On the home front, two Steubenville quarterbacks and one receiver brag, a girl you get drunk can't say no, are videotaped for a YouTube splash. One in four American women will be raped in her lifetime. On dorm floors, in labs, in classrooms, bathrooms, at work, or just walking home, watching the moon and the stars as the world splits open. Cold winds blowing across their hunched backs. It's just tremendous what's what's going on and how I find myself responding to it all. When I was a girl, it wasn't even spoken about because it was just what you would expect, just like the sun in the morning, that there would always be men trying to bother you or expose themselves or mess with you in some way. And the excitement in life was learning how to twist and turn and get out of it and get away from them or avoid them or slip and slide away, being quick and little. But today, it's all seen as a, a grave assault on all women. That's been a fast turnaround, even me and my great-granddaughters, for example. A fast and necessary one. I think that uh, people were told, too, peeping toms were not any danger. Uh, people who exposed themselves were just a little bit off in the head. And all the research we've seen since just shows that those behaviors are usually tip of the iceberg. Yeah, and all those horrible men that would expose themselves on the subway or rub against you in the subway. Frateurs, yeah. Yeah, just horrible. And And now it's all out, and maybe... It will stop. Maybe it will stop. That is my greatest hope, that in my lifetime, that will stop. I hope so, too.
You know, I'd like to read this little a stanza from a poem that uh, Cheslov Milos wrote in his poem Ars Poetica. In the very essence of poetry, there's something indecent. A thing is brought forth which we didn't know we had in us. So we blink our eyes as if a tiger had sprung out and stood in the light, lashing his tail. And I think that some of these poems in this book are the tiger lashing its tail. And you pick the tiger symbol because of tiger, tiger, burning bright. Like, <laughs> that's in the consciousness of all English-speaking, English-writing poets, that tiger. Well, I have a more positive piece that, that praises women in work. It focuses on my own mother as well. It was a time when a new Gatsby movie was coming out, and I was so annoyed that uh, of this Fitzgerald's image of the new woman as this kind of narcissistic, self-indulgent, anything-goes kind of gal, when so many different things were happening that time in the world. So this is um, this was also inspired by watching the bad girls, the Bay Area Derby girls, skate, and realizing I was in a hangar out at the Richmond docks where Rosie the Riveters put together these prefab ships for the Kaiser Corporation. So it starts with an epigraph by Naomi Shehep Nye that says, How do you know you're going to die? I begged my mother. With strange confidence, she answered, when you can no longer make a fist. Rosie Times. My mother, born into the flapper era, never bobbed her hair, never sported drop waist dresses with a cloche, nor did she cover her face with pancake and rouge, lifting her skirt above her knees in speakeasies or on Gatsby verandas. She came of age in World War II, draped in white coveralls, hair wrapped in a red scarf under a hard hat, clear goggles shielding her amber eyes. She welded pressed steel's boxcars outside Pittsburgh. Like women in Toledo, hauling jeep parts to Ford lines, like those assembling fuselages on bombers in Long Beach, or for Boeing's flying fortresses in Seattle like women filing bullets for the army or constructing ships at California's Richmond docks, like those feeding blast furnaces in steel mills, sparks flying at the giant cauldrons of molten steel. Liberty girls, the women on railroads and shipyards as pipe fitters and riggers, bus drivers and mechanics, like those shooting riveting guns or ferrying planes, ratcheting with wrenches or lighting torches, arms linked across America with the plains women, with the farm women, the desert and mountain women, with the city women, even with Marilyn Monroe, who is Norma Jean, attached propellers to planes. My mother never jumped drunken in her clothes into a fountain like F. Scott Fitzgerald's new women. But she did drop donning her mail-order rayon sheath from a rowboat into a lake belting out high notes of Indian love call at a USO picnic. She learned to love the night shift as a blackout air warden and became the woman who I would later blast for not pulling free from my father's fierce grip. I have become the woman who no longer wonders how I dared knuckle into my own fist, raise it high for rights in rallies and marches for reason and right, 
because I had a mother who dared give up a job as a nursemaid for the rail yards and factory, relinquished the girdle to the rubber drive, who never threw off the helmet for an apron, and went on living as if she could do anything, making a fist. Well, Andrina, these have all been marvelous poems from your latest book, Landings. Maybe I'd like to end with a piece that, for me, harkens to a current situation where instead of making jobs in the solar and clean energy industry, our current president is appeasing people with reopening jobs in coal and steel. And so I'd like to read this poem to perhaps remind about what it was like in those fields and perhaps maybe we should steer away from them. So it's really a poem possibly about false promises. It sits in the lap of a Gregory Orr uh, epigraph that says, No meaning but what we find here, no purpose but what we make. What they told us, what we believed. This is how they told us it would be. Hard work, hard as digging up clods of earth parched by sun, an inheritance to make something of nothing, no purpose but what we make, the natural phenomena of hummingbird defying gravity or the return of the eagle, all the gloriously hard wing beats, a chorus of courage, no meaning but what we find here, this is what they said it would be. The calloused hands that shovel shale, that stoke the furnace, the steady work of molten ash, a gift of steel, the nails chewed to the quick with layoffs threatening the next paycheck, the face muffled in winter to hide the shame of the food line, its dehydrated cheese and powdered milk. This is what they told us about the jewels that fired furnaces, the glow of slag smelting, the same fiery brilliance as the filthy sunset bleeding down upon the gray Pittsburgh skyline. Pig iron at the open hearth, a cauldron of magic making steel. This is what we believed, even as we choked on their smoke and soot. Thank you, Andrina Zawinski. Landings is a marvelous book of poems, as people have just heard. How could they get this book? Well, it's available at some local bookstores. It's available in San Francisco at uh, Bird and Beckett Books. It's available at the Beat Museum and in Oakland at uh, Diesel. And can they go online at to the usual resources and find it there under Andrina Zuwinski? Yes, I have an author's page at Amazon, and they can easily just type landings, Andrina Zuwinski, Amazon, and find it there. Well, thank you so much. We really enjoyed and feel inspired by the poems you've read. Thank well, thank you. you. I'm honored to be here. A pleasure.
If we're on a possible path to doomsday, wouldn't it be a good idea to know why and what we might do about it? Daniel Ellsberg of Pentagon Papers fame has been researching this issue for over 60 years. In his just-released book, The Doomsday Machine, Ellsberg shares his extraordinary tale of what U.S. governments and other nuclear powers have done to bring us to the brink of unprecedented catastrophe. Hi, I'm Larry Bensky, and I'll be hosting Daniel Ellsberg in Berkeley on Thursday, February 1st at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue at 7.30 p.m. Tickets for this KPFA benefit are available at independent bookstores and at brownpapertickets.com. That's Daniel Ellsberg, the man who helped end the Vietnam War and terminate the Nixon presidency. Could it happen again? One night only, Thursday, February 1st, 7.30 p.m. at St. John's Presbyterian Church in Berkeley. See you there. 